Hey everybody, Randy here. Before we get into today's episode, I want to thank one of our sponsors, and that is Gooder Sunglasses. This episode is brought to you by Gooder, G-O-O-D-R, Gooder.com, G-O-O-D-R.com. I'll just say it right off the top. You can use code TRAPDRAW, all one word, TRAPDRAW, for 15% off your entire order at Gooder.com. And I have to tell you, I run into so many people in my everyday life that have not only one pair of Gooder sunglasses, but multiple pairs. They start at just $25. It's a perfect price. You know, get a few pairs, leave one in the car, leave one in your golf bag, leave them everywhere. They look good. They're no slip, no bounce. They all have polarized lenses. They're also 100% UV protective, which is great. And if that price tag wasn't good enough, Everybody gets free U.S. standard shipping on all orders over $50. You get a 30-day free return, and there's a built-in one-year warranty. So again, go to gooder.com, G-O-O-D-R.com. Try them out. Treat yourself to a pair or two, and get 15% off your entire order when you use code TRAPDRAW at checkout. Again, all orders over $50 get free shipping in the United States, that's 15% off with code TRAPDRAW at www.goodr.com, gooder.com. Look good, golf gooder. We thank them very much for being a sponsor of the Trap Draw. And now on to today's episode. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Trap Draw Podcast. My name is Randy. This is a very special episode for me today. I know I say that a lot, but I mean it each time. And today's episode, we're we're going off the board. It's not really a golf-focused episode. My guest is Christopher Clary. He is uh, a decorated columnist, sports correspondent. He has covered global sporting events for, gosh, more than three decades, uh, primarily for the New York Times, the International Herald Tribune. He was awarded the Eugene L. Scott Award by the International Tennis Hall of Fame in 2018 for, among other things, his significant impact on the tennis world. He's a former collegiate tennis player, having competed at Williams College. And the reason uh, why I wanted to talk to him as well, he's the author of the book, The Master, The Long Run and Beautiful Game of Roger Federer. It was published in 2021. And I figured with the Australian Open getting underway, the tennis season of 2022 really kicking off, no better time to talk to Christopher. So Christopher, welcome to the Trap Draw. I really appreciate you being here. I love the book. Good morning. How are you? Let's start there. Randy, thanks a lot for having me on the show. I appreciate it. No, it's, it's been a great experience. This thing came out in late August and it's been translated into like we're into 17 languages now. It's got uh, had a lot of international reach, which has been really wonderful for a guy like Federer. It's logical. But just for me, it's been a great ride. So I've, I've learned a lot. I've met a lot of great people and um, I'm glad to meet you now. This is great. 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad we could connect. Uh, shout out Kevin Van Valkenburg for helping arrange the meeting. Um, I want to dive into the book, but, but before we do, if you'll allow me, uh, I know you are headed soon. We're, we're recording this early January. You're on your way to Australia to cover this year's Australian Open. What number Australia Open will, will this be for you? You know, I'm not sure I even know the exact number. I, I first went to the Aussie <laughs> Open in 1993. So we're heading, we're getting close to 30 years now. Yeah, yeah I, I've, been, I've been most years. It's It's been amazing to watch the transformation. And obviously things have gone a whole different direction now, Randy, with the pandemic. We'll see how things play out. But it's been a tremendous story of growth and success down there. And I always love going back as Reno Tomasi, Italian journalist, once said about going to the Aussie Open from the Northern Hemisphere. He says, it's like stealing summer. <laughs> and, it, and that's nice. You kind of go down and you get the, the Aussie summer and you're in your shorts after being in your uh, your park up here in the in the northeast. Yeah, I, I got to talk to that's funny you say that, because that's one thing I remember. I got to talk to Chris McKendry of ESPN a couple years ago, and I asked her, you know, what of all the four majors kind of what which one do you look forward to the most? And she said, honestly, it's the Australian because it's it's after the holidays and it's like the dead of winter where I am. And it's so nice to go down there and have, you know, a few weeks of, of summer and sunshine. So, um, yeah, that that certainly rings true, I think, with with a lot of people. Let me ask you this. I know um, storyline wise, obviously, Federer is not playing, which is a shame uh, on the women's side. Serena Williams will not be playing in the Australian Open. I think the one thing that we don't quite know yet for sure is is whether Novak Djokovic will be there. Um, I, are you hearing anything one way or another on on his presence at the Australian Open this year? This has truly been an amazing uh, situation. I don't use that word lightly. I mean, just the way he's played this, played his cards in this situation with not revealing his vaccination status. And then really at this point, you know, you and I are talking in very early January. We still don't know 100 percent whether he's going to be there. And, and the tournament starts in, in a couple of weeks. And it's a long way to go. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, he is he is doing this quite intentionally. He's keeping himself uh, kind of. Um, uh, aloof from everybody and, and making his decision. It's, it's a, I think it's an act of sort of willful resistance, if you will, on his part to the whole process and being forced to uh, to reveal things he doesn't want to reveal. And I think he's also resisting this whole approach to vaccination worldwide to some degree without knowing all the details of his situation. But as of right now, you know, you and I are talking, what, is, what are we talking, January 3rd here? Yeah. Uh, we do not know. And we'll, I'm sure we're going to know very soon in the next 24 to 48 hours. My, my hunch is that... Uh, is that if he's not vaccinated, I don't I don't think he's going to get an exemption unless something crazy is going on with his medical history that I'm not going to be aware of. So I personally just feel like I'm slightly leaning against him playing right now. But I know he's been practicing with Aussie Open balls in Spain and he's been uh, training again and he's tied with 20 Grand Slam singles titles with Rafa Nadal and Roger Federer. And I would love dearly to break that tie. So it wouldn't shock me, but I, I think I'm leaning toward no at this moment. And then the other, the, the third member of the big three, Rafa, appears that he will be playing. I know it was a bit up in the air with his uh, recent injuries, and he actually tested positive for COVID a, a week or so ago, two weeks ago, maybe. Um, but is that, is that correct? Do, do signs appear to point towards Rafa will be playing? Nadal is there. He's already on site. Okay. He's been training in Melbourne at the Aussie Open site. We'll, we'll be playing this week at 250, uh, which is a lower level ATP event to get himself ready. Hasn't played any real serious tennis for, for you know, basically four, four or five months and very little in the last six months. But he's there. So that's one member of the big three. He's for sure there. Novak's 50-50 at this moment. Um, 
And Nadal, um, you know, barring injury, something else that surfaces, he'll be there and he'll play. Nice. Uh, let me ask you this. This is something I've been curious about, and I know you, you touch, out on, touch on it in the book, but uh, for, for folks listening, um, I think a lot of people are into tennis, to maybe to varying degrees, but um, one thing about tennis, you know, somewhat similar to golf, uh, four, you know, quote unquote majors each year um, in tennis, they're, they're always at the same locations. Uh, what, what in, in your opinion, I, I'm most curious how they're different, I guess they're obvious, right? They're in different locations. The, the surfaces are, are different, but besides that, do you notice a feel or an importance? Um, are there differences that way between the four majors that, that you've picked up on through the years? Now, Randy, that's a podcast unto itself, my friend. So that's the only thing about that, that question itself. Or maybe it might even be a book. But I feel like, um, you know, for you with your golf audience, it's an interesting comparison, right, with the uh, with the four and the four and the major side on the men's side, at least. Women have five in golf. But I feel like um, the nice thing about golf is that you get, you get the one stable major, the Masters, and then everything else moves around and on a right. certain road with, with a lot of familiarity, particularly in the Open Championship with those, those venues. Tennis is has had some movement long ago in terms of some venue changes within the four majors in tennis, um, but very, very little. And so it's much more of a stable sort of vibe every year. You know what you're in for. And I think it gives the game you know, a lot of uh, dimension and a lot of, um, you know, I'd say a lovely rhythm. Uh, it's a little bit skewed because you've got the uh, French opens in May, June, Wimbledon very soon after, and then the U S open at the end of the summer, those three are very densely packed and the way the Australian opens evolved it's very early in the season. So there's kind of a long sort of gap there. But I think in terms of feel and vibe, the Aussie Open and the U.S. Open, because of the surface that they're played on now, hard courts, they both used to be played on grass long ago. Um, they're the most similar, I would say, in terms of feel, in terms of crowd feel, in terms of just the whole vibe of it, the way the Australian Open's grown. It's got a lot of uh, audience now, a lot of huge public gets there. It's very crowded and just a whole bunch of vibe. And then Paris... Roland Garros on the red clay mm-hmm. and Wimbledon on the grass at basically, which is a private club on the outskirts of London. Those two are very distinct. So I'd say you have the Aussie and the U S which have to have a similar feel different, of course, because of the cultures involved and the jet lag involved. And then you have the other two. So th- I'd say there are three really, really strong, distinct experiences in the major world of, of sport and tennis. But I think, you know, for me, one of the things I love about tennis is that the fact that you are always shifting surfaces and you're shifting confidence and you're getting a chance as a writer to kind of uh, weave that into your coverage. And also we travel a lot. I mean, I've been traveling my whole professional life, my whole life, really. I'm a, I'm a Navy kid. And uh, you go on the road. I'm probably on the road on average four to six months of the year, which is hard. Yeah. But because you have the majors in the same location every year, you have a feeling that you're kind of living in these places on the installment plan. So when I go back to Melbourne, if I get to go there, if, if my flights aren't canceled and I don't test positive in the next week or so, um, it'll be like returning to a place where I've been probably total in my life, almost three years if you add it all up. That's incredible. Uh, it's always been two or three weeks at a time, but it's been over <laughs> if you add it all up altogether. It's probably been that long. So I know the coffee shops. I know the, the guy who's, uh, you know, who's selling something on the corner store, the guys in the hotel that I've seen for years. So it feels a little bit like going home, strangely. And I think for players, guys like Federer have been around forever. Uh, much like the golfers probably going back to Augusta National is similar. Um, you, you know, uh, you know, the place and it feels like home. And the mm-hmm. same thing for me. I was, my wife's French. 
I uh, lived in Paris for a lot of my adult life. International Herald Tribune was based there. So for me, that feels like a home grand slam to go back there every year and spend that time. And Wimbledon is a distinct thing with the grass and the the British mentality and the history of the place. So it, that really is one of the great joys of, of doing this job, frankly, or being a tennis fan, Frank, I think as well. Uh, if uh, for somebody like me who hasn't been to any of the four grand slams, uh, what would your recommendation be in terms of a, a pecking order for a first timer? Well, I think if you're looking for a, a magical uh, experience, sort of a transporting experience that gives you the quintessence of tennis history and all that, you, you have to go to Wimbledon. I think okay. everybody should go. It has, it has some downsides. It can be overly packed. Um, it's difficult sometimes to get a, a decent ticket. One of the hardest places in any, in any sport to get a, to get a good ticket, um, like a bit like Augusta national with the masters. But I think, um, yeah, anybody who gets to go there, it's a, uh, it's a special experience and it doesn't disappoint. I personally love the French open because it's uh, it is very Parisian mm-hmm. and the, the red clay is a distinct surface. Fantastic for movement. Um, the long slides, the uh, the way the tactics are different and the spins are, are really more in play there than a lot of other surfaces. And I love how the way when night starts to fall in Paris, the kind of that getting toward uh, toward dusk, um, the way the shadows lengthen across that red clay, that is fantastic uh, place to be. And maybe my favorite moment in any and my favorite tennis moment is that sort of period of time, that sort of 7 to 9 p.m. period in Paris at the French Open. I love it. I love it. I was curious about that, too. And you and you answered my question before I could ask it. Um, I'd love to ask you a few questions broadly about the tennis world, uh, kind of dovetailing with with, like I said, the Australian Open. Um, the last major, of course, was was uh, the 2021 U.S. Open back last uh, September. Couple couple breakthrough victories. You had Daniil Medvedev on the men's side winning his first major. Emma Raducanu came out of nowhere. Obviously, won her first major. Really um, burst onto the scene. Uh, let me start with Daniil. I, I think the natural thing is to you know you, you have your big three still in tennis. What do you make of his ability to compete with the the Djokovic's and and even Nadal's still? I, I know Federer is kind of a different case. Um, I guess what I'm asking, what, what do you make of his ability to to stack some majors here over the next few years? I do. I think so. I think he's a, he's a, he is a he's a very very big talent. The limitation and the caveat, of course, is that he's really for the moment. Uh, in terms of major contender, he's only a major contender on one surface, which is the hard courts, which is the Australian okay. Open, U.S. Open uh, uh, surface. He's yet to prove himself on clay or grass at that level. Um, would be a big surprise if he were to win the French Open or Wimbledon at this stage. So it's hard to call him a, a great potential champion if he's, if he's weak, comparatively so, on the other two surfaces. What's to, what define the big three? And frankly, the big four, if you include Andy Murray or the big five, if you include Stan Vavrinko, was their ability to excel on different surfaces, um, all of them, especially the big three. And to be a factor at every one, those guys were in the mix at the end. Daniel Medvedev has, has a long way to go to get to that stage. But in terms of the hard courts right now, I mean, for me, he's my favorite heading into the Australian Open. Uh, he, that's a great surface for him. He hits the ball very flat, relies on great timing. He's a, he's a tactician, shifts uh, his tactics all the time based on the situation, very intelligent player. And he's got a playful side, as you've seen, with the way he handles sort of adversity with the crowds. He almost encourages it and, and sort of loves to role play out there. And I yeah. think he's got a lot of charisma. I mean, people might say Daniel Medvedev, you know, from Russia, uh, you know, tall guy, big hitter. No, thank you. But I, I think 
the more you watch him, the more you appreciate sort of the, the experience of Daniel Medvedev. And he's a guy also let's, who's remarkably uh, multicultural. Grew up in France. A lot of his uh, young adult life has been there. He speaks wonderful French um, and I think very colorful English and is obviously Russians hanging in there. So, but he's a guy, I think who's going to be a, a big factor on the hard courts for, for slams the next three to four or five years. And if he can improve himself, I don't see why he can't play well on grass uh, with his big serve and his flat game. I think he mm-hmm. have a good chance, but he has to get there. Who, who are some of your uh, kind of on, on, on this line, who are some of your favorite men's players to watch more outside the, of that big three, you know, I, I think the big three kind of speak for themselves at, at this point. Are, are there others outside of that group that you really, really enjoy watching? That's a great question, Randy. I, I, for me, everybody has their personal preferences. Just like when you're watching golf or whatever it is, you have a style of play you enjoy and get more out of or a mentality that you admire and, and enjoy watching. You know, for me, I love one handed backhands. Okay. I hit a, I hit a very mediocre one in Division Three <laughs> college tennis, and I admire those who can do it. And there are a lot of great ones in the men's game right now. Um, Stefano Sitsipas, young Greek player who's had a lot of success, reached the French Open final, nearly won it last year against Djokovic. Um, and you've got uh, Denis Shapovalov, very dynamic Canadian player, spectacular shot maker, a little erratic still. Those two guys, I you know love to watch them play, and. Yeah, this is be a long list, but I'll add one other name, and that is this eighteen-year-old uh, from Spain who made an impact at the U.S. Open. A guy named Carlos Alcaraz, who is doesn't have a one-hander, although he uses it for his drop shot and his slice a lot on the backhand side. But he's a guy who's just jumps off the screen at you. He is a charismatic, huge hitter of the ball, even though he's not that big, and just loves the game, loves to compete, and has all the variety. Even though he's a Spanish player. He is not a typical Spaniard in the sense that he's got an all-court game and loads of flair. And he's the guy I think everybody has their eye on a bit heading into 2022 because he, based on what he did at the U.S. Open, beating Sitsipas in a spectacular match and then showing a lot of of game against big players down the stretch, he's a guy at 18 who could really break through and and emerge as, as a superstar if he puts it all together. And, and that's a great segue into what I was going to ask is um, in in your opinion, are, are there any of those, next generation greats lurking right now in the men's game. And it sounds like uh, Alcaraz is, is for sure, at least a, uh, a contender to perhaps uh, pick up that, pick up that mantle, I guess, you know, with Djokovic being 34, it, it shocks me that the age of these guys, I, I still think they're in their like late twenties. Um, but Djokovic being 34, I think Nadal's 35 Federer's obviously has turned 40. It's, it's amazing the run they've had, but, I think naturally then it's like, okay, well, well, who's next? Who's going to fill the void once these guys inevitably start to slow down? No, there's definitely some void filling already going on. And I think those three guys, three guys you mentioned with those ages is probably because of the the generation of athletes we're seeing around the world Uh, globally. They're they're all doing it in different sports and are showing the ability to excel. I mean, you've got guys like uh, Cristiano Ronaldo in soccer and Ibrahimovic in soccer who are playing in their late thirties. Ibrahimovic is 40 now. You're seeing it across many sports, but, in tennis, there's been a, a slow push. I don't see, you know, among the guys that so far have emerged, Daniel Medvedev, Alexander Zverev, Stefano Tsitsipas, those sorts of players haven't had the same success at the earlier ages that Nadal, Djokovic, and Federer did. Um, so it's hard to see them having the same kind of success over the arc of their careers because they're just getting a later start mm-hmm. and they're having to deal with the big three. But I, I do think Zverev, who's a, about six foot six uh, German uh, with Russian parents who's had some off-court issues, which 
uh, I think held him back um, and caused some problems for him and others. I think he's a guy who has all the shots, all the game on all the surfaces. So if he puts his head together, gets his game going, uh, even though he's about 23 or so now, I see him winning a lot of slams and a lot of tournaments. And he's, he's in terms of what he brings to the package as a six foot six guy who can move so well with a huge serve, big backhand and improving game at the net. He is a generational talent. If he has the mental game to back it up. And then a guy like Alcaraz, who I mentioned, is a spectacular player. Doesn't have a big, big serve. Generates a lot of pace for a guy who's six foot one. But he's, uh, I don't know if the physicality of the game is going to allow him to excel week to week in a way the big three did for so long. But he's certainly a guy who has uh, exceptional ball striking ability and, and great, great natural power. So those two guys definitely jump out at me. And then, you know, there's also Tsitsipas uh, as well, who's a guy who is... Uh, Beautiful player, a very ambitious, driven player with uh, great multi multi court ability. So there are some guys who could rise to that level, but um, they're getting they got to get got to get going because the big three started early. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then I, you know, of course, I'd be remiss not to ask you about the American men. There are a, a handful now, uh, kind of under twenty five, that are between that. Uh, gosh, all the way up to like number twenty in the ATP rankings, down to about seventy. You have guys like Taylor Fritz. Riley Opelka, uh, Francis Tiafo, uh, Sebastian Corda, and others. What do you make of the American crop of of young players? Is there anybody in there that really excites you? Do you you know Do you have an opinion on who might eventually be really the the top American male for the next five ten years? You know, Randy, the historical bar is just so high for American tennis and American men's tennis. So many great champions over the years. So it's hard to. As someone like me who's been around a long time, 30 plus years, it's hard for me to get uh, overly excited because, you know, we don't have anybody in the top 20 right now in the men's mm-hmm. game, which is to me still a little hard to believe based on the legacy of men's tennis in our country and and how many people are still playing the game. And a lot of the guys that they're going to be competing against, these young younger Americans, are already established. Guys like Sissipas, Ferif, Medvedev, Alcaraz, Yannick Sinner, we haven't mentioned yet, an Italian player who's already in the top 10 who hits, hits the ball a ton and has a great talent, and he's only 20 years old. So a lot of the guys that they're competing against for these titles to come in the next decade have already established themselves and are already contenders. The Americans are behind in that department. So I don't know if I see a multiple Grand Slam champion among them. However, based on what we've experienced in the last five years or so, this is a nice uptick and the fruit of a lot of labor and a lot of people's part to get this generation of guys to come through together. And I think, you know, for me, you've got three or four of those guys who have real top end talent Um, slam winners. I don't know, but you know, deep in the second week players potentially in multiple slams, they would be Riley Opelka just because he's such an exceptionally uh, difficult player to play. He's seven, almost seven feet tall. Maybe he is seven feet tall. He hits the serve a ton as he should and has sort of figured out a way to use his tools in his mid-20s a little more intelligently. So he's sort of shortening the points. And he has a, he has a darn, darn good backhand and an improving forehand. So anybody that tall that who has athleticism in tennis is going to cause problems, much like John Isner has for many years in, in the men's game from the U.S. So Opelka is going to be a factor if he stays healthy. I think Taylor Fritz, American again, kind of in 24, 20, 24 25 range from California, has great talent, has had a very good, strong end of the season in 2021. You have Sebastian Corda from the Corda Sports family. I'm sure you, your listeners are well aware of, of that. Of course, yeah. Big golf, uh, golf. Nelly and Jessica. Over and there. Yep. Probably the most 
probably most extraordinary sports family in, in the world right now in many respects. Yeah, that's... Um, and Sebastian is a big, big talent. Hits the ball, easy power, uh, has a very nice on-court temperament. Serve could come up a bit, could improve. He's a big guy, which is going to be important in tennis going forward. And I think he's got a great pedigree. His father, Peter Corda, was a Grand Slam winner. His mom, Regina, was also a fine WTA player. He's been raised as a champion very carefully, very methodically. Um, no rush. Put the platform in place. And I, I think of all those guys, to me, he's the one who has a chance to win a slam or two, just based on his, his overall ability and the timeline that he's on. And he has all the tools. And then there's a guy I also put in there. Uh, I don't want to slight Francis Tiafoe or Tommy Paul or these other guys who are very good and, and, and could surprise me. But Jensen Brooksby is a Californian with a very unconventional game, kind of a Jim Furyk style player for tennis, if you will. Okay. He's a guy who hits uh, with unorthodox strokes, but he does what works. And he's uh, tactically incredibly astute, very fit, um, changes pace, changes rhythms. If you're a tennis player, he's the kind of guy you enjoy watching because he uses the whole canvas when he plays. Not always pretty, can be unorthodox, but he, he beats a lot of people and he's going to beat a lot of people. And he's a guy because he's also in that sort of six foot three, six foot four range and can really move. If he improves his serve, he's a guy who could be a top 10 player in the world. So the U.S. has these guys at the right age to make an impact. The problem is the guys are, they're playing against are already there and ready to, ready to win slams. So that's a pretty, pretty tough hurdle to get through for all of them over the next 10 years or so. But, but they are in place and that's good. I love that. I, I get very excited listening to, you know, experts such as yourself do the, the prognostication. I thank you very much. I, I was going to ask, you know, you spend a lot of time in your book speaking about Roger's development and um, the Swiss, you know, national program and, and so forth. With what you've seen with American tennis over the last 30 years, I'm sure there's a question that gets asked a ton. So I, I apologize. Was there anything tangible that you've seen um, that was a shift in like the American tennis philosophy that would explain, you know, a relative dearth of, of world-class talent over the last several years, or what, what do you make of the quote unquote drought of, of great American tennis? Well, the thing uh, is, on the Randy, men's side, I should exactly. say, because obviously that's the that. women have been hugely successful. And that's a big caveat because if there was a real uh, obstacle for good or a sea change and shift, I think we would have seen a drought and a dearth of great players on both ends of it, women's okay. and men's side. Women's side has a very different landscape and is obviously with Serena in particular. Serena Williams in the last uh, 20 years has had a generational talent, probably multiple generational talent, if you will, winning so much. So well, tennis in the U.S. Has, has not suffered yet, but um, I think in the overall side of the men. I think a number of things happened over time. I think the world got better. Um, and also the breakup of the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc and back in the 90s created an opportunity for a lot of individual countries to create their own program, particularly in Eastern Europe, um, and really raise the game. Uh, Russian players really weren't factors in, in the men's game for a long time. They have been big factors in the last 20 years with Yevgeny Kafelnikov, Murat Safin. I talk about a lot about Safin in the book. Yeah. And then more recently, Medvedev, Rublev, um, Hatchinov. These players here are, are high quality. So that that's there's just more people in the mix globally now. I think people have figured out the ways to raise tennis champions outside of the Florida Tennis Academies. Right now, you can become a champion by staying in Europe, which was really not possible to the same degree for a while there when the Florida Academies were the center of the tennis universe. 
And I think, um, you know, like in a lot of other sports, the information and knowledge has been democratized. But on the U.S. side, I think it's a, on the men. It's, it's I think it's a factor of a number number of factors. I, I'm I'm not sure I have the definitive answer. I think our best athletes have many options in our country uh, to be pulled into uh, other sports. It's very sure. very. Uh, you have to make a very intentional choice to play tennis many times early on. You need a lot of money to be able to play the tournaments and get the, the coaching and, and do the travel you need to do as a young player. But to make it, the United States Tennis Association does fund a lot of players and has put a lot of money into uh, developing players with very mixed results. But I think ultimately you have athletes like a Federer or Nadal or Djokovic. I'm not sure if they were Americans, they would have chosen tennis. That said, how many great athletes do you need to make a champion uh, in the U.S.? Maybe not that many. Two or yeah. three guys who are very driven, a guy like a Corda who comes in, who has the right background, decides to play. He could become a champion despite the fact the numbers are what they used to be or the fact that tennis is number 12 or 13 on the pecking order in the U.S. versus number two or three in a lot of European countries. But that is a factor. And I think the other factor is that um, we aren't getting the junior numbers we used to get uh, in the sport. Uh, in the U.S. So the, the pool of players that are competing against each other uh, isn't big enough to really to winnow and, and, and hone the champions. I think if you go back a bit farther, a lot of the great European players, including Federer, were really formed on clay. Mm-hmm. Even though Roger's best surface has been grass or fast hardcore, he learned how to play the game on clay. And that teaches you a, a range of skills and shots in tennis that are very, very useful as you rise in the game. And we had a a lot of guys who were used to quicker hard courts in our in our country for a long time, and that hurt them on the international level. And I, you know, also I feel like um, I think the uh, the way the game structured in the U.S. with uh, the best players sort of spread out around the country, not always competing against each other early on. You need that core of guys who are going to play off each other to rise together, and you're seeing that a little bit with the group we talked about, but you've seen that a lot in a lot of different cultures uh, in men's tennis, in particular from Spain to Russia, to France, to um, Italy now, where you have sort of core guys that go up and rub against each other for 10 years as juniors and, and kind of push each other to new heights. Yeah. And I guess that's, that's all been missing. But, I, you know, it's it's disappointing because we, we have put a lot of resources and money, the U.S. Open money, a lot of it's gone into player development. And there are good athletes who are choosing tennis in the U.S. from the men's side. But I think the, the bar has just become higher over, overseas and it's a harder bar for us to clear now. Let me ask you about a couple quick questions on the women's side. Um, I know Naomi Osaka is slated to compete in the in the Australian Open. She, of course, uh, had taken a pretty lengthy break in in twenty twenty one. All things considered, do you think you know her best is is the best in the world? Well, I equate not quite, but I, I, the similarities with Osaka and Daniel Medvedev in the sense that Naomi Osaka is for the moment, a hardcore specialist in a lot of ways. Okay. She's not, not had great results on, on clay or on grass as well. So, uh, you know, someone like Serena Williams, who's won all the grand slams on all those surfaces multiple times yeah. or Steffi Graf back in the day, uh, Naomi Osaka is not poised to do that, but as a hardcore player with her natural power and her skills and her competitive instincts, when she's feeling good about herself and her game, she is very, very tough to beat on hard courts. So you could see her winning, you know, multiple slams. And if she does very well on that surface next couple of years, you know, maybe getting back to number one. But a lot of players have sort of risen who have more all-court games. There are more coming. So I don't know if I see Naomi with those 
uh, problems she's had on clay and grass being a dominant number one, like Serena was, uh, which might be a surprise to a lot of casual fans. They think, well, Naomi's the next one. Yeah. And well, also, hand, the, hand uh, up. That's, that's me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. I understand that. And what things that are prominent in our country, the U S open, she's obviously won it twice and has made a big name for herself with her off court approach with the social justice and things like that. But she's also shown a vulnerable side mentally, which I don't know how that's going to go. It's hard to predict. I mean, she's somebody obviously who has trouble managing um, uh, consistent results because of some of the emotional challenges she's facing. Talked about depression, talked about um, not embracing all the elements of tennis on the professional circuit, not really enjoying the media give and take and the scrutiny. And we'll talk about this later, Randy, but one of the reasons why guys like Roger and Rafa have lasted is because they've been able to embrace the whole gamut of tennis mm-hmm. and, and find good in all of it and find a way to not just cope, but thrive in all those different departments. And right now, Naomi's not there. So I no no doubt any hardcore tournament when she's healthy and feeling good, she's a huge threat, but we'll have to see how, how it plays out for the rest of her rest of her game and the overall dominance. Last question on the, on the women's side. Can you put into perspective how out of the blue, how unexpected, unprecedented the Raducanu win was last year at the U.S. Open? I, I think it's... I, I was trying to think of maybe an analogy with golf and uh, maybe an unheralded player who qualifies, you know, goes through local qualifying, sectional qualifying to then get in the U S open and then wins it. Like it, it, in, in your opinion, like how unprecedented and uh, amazing was that victory last year? You know, to me, having covered this sport uh, for 30 plus years, it was the most surprising thing I've seen uh, in yeah. terms of, win- of actually winning a champion winning a Grand Slam championship, a Grand Slam title. Uh, there have been more surprising one-match results over time, but that that kind of a run for a player without that kind of a pedigree or that kind of a background, and it, and it was a fairly full field. Huh? Uh, shocking. Truly shocking. didn't drop a set, right? I, I think did, did, when- Didn't drop a set, and she also got through qualifying, yeah. which is also the most extraordinary thing. No qualifier had ever won a Grand Slam tournament, irrespective of how little known they were. And she yeah. did that. And uh, and she did it in, in style and she seemed to be in this fantastic bubble. There have been some surprises in the past. One I mentioned is Gustavo Kirtan. Mm-hmm. I remember him, Guga. He was called a Brazilian player, very flashy. I had never seen him play when he won the 1997 French Open before the tournament started. He was ranked 66 in the world. And I had you know, he had and was off my radar. This is pre-social media days. I had watched him for the first time there and nobody would ever have dreamed he would win the title and he went on to win the French open. So that was sort of the men's equivalent. Okay. But Emma ranked lower had played much less. Um, and to not drop a set, as you say, and, and to show just this remarkable poise in all court game. And then <laughs> the story as well with her background being from Britain with uh, Romanian Chinese parents, uh, a global superstar ready to be hatched right there. Crazy. The whole thing was crazy. And what a fantastic story for tennis. And now comes the hard part. She has to find a way to uh, manage her new riches and her new uh, stature and at a very you know, young age. She's a smart uh, young person. I've interviewed her a couple of times and mm-hmm. uh, has a lot of poise. I think she's somebody who could really grow into a, her role uh, if she's able to handle all this pressure and responsibility because she's uh, she's bright and has multilingual ability. But her game to me doesn't seem to be a next level uh, clearly a next level game. She hit a wonderful stride in New York and she also did well at Wimbledon. If you recall, uh, won, right. won, a couple, won a couple of rounds there as well. And that's where she kind of first got on the radar, but not that kind of radar where you think she'd win the U S open. So I, I don't know if she's a player 
like a Serena Williams or in the back in the day, Steffi Graf, who was clearly taking the game to a new level, mm-hmm. able to, with her skill set and her mentality, bring something entirely new that's going to just change the game dramatically. And therefore, she's going to dominate. She's going to have to dominate by being excellent in all departments and by managing mentally the challenges ahead of her. And, and the women's game is extremely balanced right now. There have been many different champions in recent years. And so, Emma, I personally would be surprised if she wins another Grand Slam title in 2022. Down the road, with her abilities and her team she has around her, certainly possible. But I don't. she's not going to take over the game, in my view. Do you think this just question just popped in my head? Uh, and as you said, the, the women's game seems much more balanced and maybe a lot more people that have the potential to win uh, a major tournament. Is that better than kind of having the sport dominated by one or two superstars? Uh, do you, I, I'm sure there are positives and negatives to, to both cases. Um, but I guess I, I would ask you that. And then along those same lines, are there, are there any women kind of up and coming that you see that, you know, excite you in terms of their potential and, and perhaps could be a, a, a game changing type player? You know, Randy, personally, I like uh, what we're seeing now in women's game. I, I really enjoy the fact that it's so open and that these young talents have a chance to emerge or not even always young people like Barbora Krajikova, who won the French Open last year, kind of in her mid 20s, was more of a double specialist, has a wonderful game. Great variety. Uh, when you watch her play, it's, it's, it's a true joy because she just uses, uses the whole court. And uh, she went to a whole new level and, and won the French and had a great season. So you're seeing all these different opportunities for players uh, because the game is so even near the top and it's a big top. Um, and I think what's helped it is that the men have still been very stable with guys like Djokovic winning so much. So if you're a tennis fan sort of intermittently and you come into it, you know, men, when I know those guys, that's stability. And the woman's kind of chaotic. So I don't know who's going to win there, but I kind of enjoy having one thing I can count on one thing I, I could have discovered. Yeah. What we're, what we're heading toward perhaps now is more of a case where they're both like that. Um, we'll see how long Novak Djokovic can hold on and whether Rafa Nadal can come back and, and play uh, dominant tennis again on clay and as he, at the stage in life he's at. But I think we're heading more to uncertainty everywhere. I'm not sure that's great for tennis's global profile in a sense, because it's hard to really dig your teeth into one uh, rivalry or one set of players that somebody who follows the game casually can just tap in and go, okay, well, where's Federer yeah. playing or where's Djokovic <laughs> exactly. playing or where's Serena playing? I'm not sure we're going to be there again for a while. Um, so that could be problematic, but right now it's a lovely sweet spot if you ask me. And, and as an, a guy who likes to, uh, I mean, you don't, you don't get a better situation in my view than Novak Djokovic playing Medvedev for the true grand slam, which hadn't been done in over in 50 years on the men's side at the last U S open in the final. And then you had this completely out of the blue final, Emma Raducanu and Layla Fernandez, both teenagers playing in this final that nobody Nobody, not them, not their, not their parents. <laughs> Nobody would have predicted or even imagined. Yeah. So that was a, that was a lovely contrast. I'm not sure we'll have that crazy contrast again, but that, that to me was, was box office. And one of the reasons why the U S open last year was so great. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Amen to that. Everybody, Randy again, sorry to interrupt the conversation, but I want to thank our other sponsor today. And that is our good friends at DraftKings Sportsbook. We're on to the divisional round of the NFL playoffs, baby. The Bengals are still alive. Life is good. And DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL, is celebrating with a huge odds boost for new customers. Counting down to Super Bowl 56, new customers can get 56 to 1 odds on any team. 
Bet just $5 and get 280 in free bets if your team wins. And if Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, you can still get in on the action of the divisional round. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Football Contest. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. So right now, download the DraftKings Sportsbook app, use promo code NLU, and get 56 to 1 odds on any NFL team. Bet just $5 and win 280 in free bets if your team wins. That's promo code NLU for 56 to 1 odds at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Thank them very much for sponsoring this episode. And now back to my conversation. Let's let's jump into uh, The Master. Like I said, your, your book, The Master, The Long Run and Beautiful Game of, of Roger Federer. It is, um, as I've gotten more and more into tennis, you know, one of the things I've sought out is, is good tennis books. And um, I, I know there have been a number of biographies and, and books about Roger Federer, but I'm so glad to have found yours. And I, I truly, truly enjoyed it um, for a number of reasons. We'll, we'll, we'll get into them. But not only do you really trace Roger, his path from early childhood up, really up until present. Um, I, I absolutely loved how you kind of go off on tangents and, and speak about, you know, his big rivals, Rafa and, and Novak. And even before that, like the Leighton Hewitt stuff and Murat Safin and so many guys that, uh, and people that, you know, just allow me to learn so much about the game. So it's a wonderful book. I would recommend it to any, you know, hardcore tennis people listening, any casual tennis people listening, or if you have tennis people in your life, it's uh, I, I know we just got through the holidays, but it's, it, it'd be an excellent gift as well. With that said, Christopher, I would love to start kind of with, with Roger's childhood and, and his earlier days. I love how you trace Roger's development as a tennis player. Uh, there are so many fun, rich anecdotes and, and stories I think what stuck with me the most, and I wonder kind of if this is fair, I'd love to get your reaction to this, is it was really no sure thing, you know, quote unquote, sure thing that Roger would become, you know, this, this one of the greatest tennis players of all time. You know, I think I, I juxtapose that with the Tiger Woods phenomenon in golf, where it really seemed like from an early age, people were like, oh yeah, he's going to be the next great golfer you know it, it just seemed destined and I think with Roger it was like oh man no this could have gone so many different ways this this was absolutely no sure thing uh is, is that fair is that that that's kind of what I picked up reading your book that's that's my take um and okay. I think okay all, well then I just all, stole your no, take. No, yeah, exactly no 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 you, you got you got the thesis statement just right I think you know it's um in this in the sense that you know, what is a sure thing uh, in tennis in particular where so much injury or, or bad luck or family problems can, can lead you a different direction. But in Roger's case, I think because of the time when he, when he rose, the country he was from, Switzerland was not a, in terms of the men's side, had not produced any great, great champions. So you had Martina Hengis who'd come in around the time of Roger, who was very helpful because it showed she was Swiss, she was Swiss and she got to number one. She was an immigrant from Slovakia, uh, and she was able to, to show that it could be done in Switzerland. But really, in terms of the precedence for Roger, they weren't necessarily there in Swiss sport. 
uh, on the men's side. And, um, and I think he had a lot of demons to conquer, not, you know, family problems, so to speak, but just within his own character and his own approach to be able to manage the pressure of, of trying to fulfill his talent and find a way to put together all these elements that he clearly had and the ability that he clearly had and channel it and get the most out of it. And to me, it's, it's so much had to go right. And so much could have gone wrong. Mm-hmm. That's clear that he was going to be a, a fine tennis player and have some success on tour. Wasn't a leap. That was certainly clear to most people who watched him, but to be the champion of the level that he became took so many things and so many good choices and, and some luck as well, for sure, for it to happen. And, and, and to me, that was the fun part of the book was obviously I followed Roger for 20 years as a professional interviewed him many, many times, got to know him as a journalist. And, uh, but frankly, I didn't realize how kind of on the edge it was, especially in those early years, what it could have gone a different direction. And to talk to everybody again for the book, go back and do 80 plus interviews with different people in his life to really get an understanding on a granular level, how, how close it was to being a different story was, was the most interesting part of it for me. And, you know, I, you've, you've spent so much time with, with Roger, as you said, and obviously putting together the book, you've, you've, uh, you know, no doubt read, you know, you, you know, all of his stories and anecdotes by heart, but I'm curious now, you know, several months later, are, are there any little anecdotes or stories and, and as a way to kind of tease listeners as well, that, that really stick with you most um, even, even today, you know, really at the top of your mind? Well, you know, I think a lot of it comes down to ultimately how your family treats you in terms of how you're, you're either you're, you're carried by your family or you're reacting to your family in some way. Um, and maybe you're going against the teachings that they have brought to you or you're going with them. I feel like Roger's parents, Robert and Lynette, I have not interviewed them in recent years. They've kind of created distance with the media, which I think was probably a smart decision, but they definitely um, in the early years talked about what their philosophy was. And they were, they were interested in Roger's career and they, they were a big part of his team at different times, but I think they helped him get his values right. And, and his morals straight and his approach to, uh, to people, right? And that has really helped him throughout his tennis career in, in a ways that have encouraged him to have longevity. And so I, I go back to those early years when, you know, he's, your son's very talented, family's putting a fair bit of money and a fair bit of effort into his tennis career and making sacrifices. But they made times at choices at times where they just drew the line. You're not going to act this way. We're not going to encourage this. You're not going to allow you to be temperamental on the court or, or go too far. And, you know, one story I love is when Robert Federer, Roger's dad is playing with him and when Roger's very young at their old boys tennis club in Basel, which is Roger's home city in Switzerland and Roger's acting up on the court and just being generally uh, a little jerk, basically, and <laughs> not, accept, not accepting his mistakes and just being very unpleasant. And his father basically just stops a match, slaps a, a Swiss franc coin on the bench and, and leaves. And basically this was Frank coin was for him to catch public transport back to the house. And he wasn't getting a ride from his dad. His dad just took up. So that's that a little thing, but I think that was done on, on a pretty consistent scale over a long period of time. And I think it's one of the reasons why Roger treats people with the respect that he does. And is also ultimately beloved as he is because he learned how he learned where the limits were. His parents were not afraid to set those limits. And I think that's very important. Yeah. I, 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 I love that story. That was one that that sticks at the at the top of my mind too, as well. After uh, after reading the book, I think that and uh, little Roger, I think he might have been six years old. 
you know, crying under the, uh, the umpire's chair after losing a match in a, in a youth tournament. That that's one that. Yeah. I'll- yeah. All the, all the other kids had left the court after the tournament and they had their box lunches, whatever at the clubhouse yeah. and Roger's still under the umpire's chair crying. Yeah. Yeah. He's very young, obviously, but I mean, it was, it was certainly an indicator of, of the kind of emotional challenges that he faced. And he's a very sensitive person. He picks up all the energy in the room in a way, you know, I'm, I'm many athletes are, are highly I think emotionally intelligent, but Roger picks it all up and, and carries it all. So he had to learn to, to find a way to carry it and then still thrive. And that was hard. Yeah. Um, obviously, uh, you, you, you do a great job detailing, chronicling his, his rise as, as a junior player. And then eventually he, he turns pro in, in 1998. I'm, I'm skipping a lot, but just in the interest of, you know, sure, sure. the interview and, and brevity. There are a couple of things. I know this is the first time you saw Roger in person after he had turned pro, obviously in 1998, I believe this is the first time you had seen Roger play in person. Um, just for context, he wouldn't win his first ATP singles event until 2001. So kind of a three-year stretch there uh, after turning pro where he's really getting his feet under him. I, I'm curious if, if you don't mind just kind of taking me and, and listeners back to that first time you saw Roger and, and what those first impressions that you had of him were. And, you know, I, I, I'm always so curious. You've obviously been around the game so long. You have such a wealth of, of knowledge and, and so many folks you've seen. But that first time you saw Roger, what do you remember about that? Well, it's funny because, again, we're in a period of time in the late 1990s. It was 1999 um, when you didn't have social media. Uh, that most tennis tournaments uh, were not televised, at least at least not until the end. And so you just didn't have an image of people. You, you weren't watching clips on YouTube. Yeah. So just to have an image of a player then. Now, if somebody of Rogers level or Nadal's level came along, you would have been watching clips of them as juniors. Mm-hmm. Most promising juniors in the world now, you can see clips of them as you go along on Twitter or whatever it would be. And, and you have a, an image or a vision of it. I didn't have anything like that. I just heard about Roger. And I basically had a couple of agents I knew very well in 1999 at the French Open when Roger made his debut at the Grand Slam level, got a wild card in there, which was pretty great for him. Uh, They said, you got to go watch this guy. Uh, He's a special talent. And they said, you got to believe us because we're not representing him. So that was good. I said, (laughs) "Okay, well, that's already much more, you know, that speaks to me even more if you're saying that because you're not getting any money out of this. So I'll go check it out. (laughs) So I went out and sat up in the stands, which I probably would not have done without that comment uh, and watched him play Patrick Rafter, who was a number one player in the world from Australia, kind of a swashbuckling, great guy, attacking player and loved the clay because he grew up playing on what they call ant bed in Queensland, Australia, which is uh, basically crushed termite hills, Hmm. which is, which is sort of this granular surface, which resembles, what we, you know, what we call red clay or hard true in the U S the green clay. So he was good on the clay and Roger drew him first round, which is a tough, tough draw, obviously. And I went out to watch, watch him and uh, just the fluidity and the shot making ability and kind of just like a little cocky, frankly, attitude <laughs> Roger had uh, definitely jumped out. Yeah. I was in a great seat on Suzanne Long Glen court, which is the number two court at, at the French open. And um, the kid, you know, lit it up for a while there. He won the first set. And seemed to be thinking he should be doing better. He had this exuded confidence, but he also had this volatility to him. You could see a lot of yeah, a lot of shouts and yells. He was wearing his his back his cap backwards, which was very unfederesque if you think about the way he developed into this elegant champion. He sort of looked, looked a little scrappy. And then 
Rafter started to slice and dice him with the backhand, come to the net, uses clay court skills. Roger didn't have the staying power mentally or physically at that time. And Rafter played it out. But the early signs in that match definitely stuck with me. Did I see him and go, okay, multiple Grand Slam champion, can't miss? I didn't say that. That happened two years later when I watched him play the U.S. in Davis Cup in 2001 in Basel, Switzerland, Roger's hometown again. Uh, he represented Switzerland and just put on a show against the U.S. Davis Cup team. Patrick McEnroe was in his first match as captain there. Todd Martin was playing singles, was a very, very fine player from the U.S. And Roger just made everybody look like they were on a different level below him. And, and even cried at the end after they won, yeah. which was a great foreshadowing. And I watched him play, and I said, it hasn't happened to me very often. I said this in the book. I'm not this great prognosticator who can say that's going to be a champion or <laughs> I, I can tell already, I can give you the top 10 for 10 years from now. I'm not like that. I tend to be much better, sadly, at analyzing after the fact. But in this case, I watched the guy. People were already talking about him, of course. But I literally could imagine him. He's playing on an indoor hard court. I could see grass below his feet and the way he was moving and hitting the ball, catching the ball early, hitting winners from all different parts of the court. It's just so fluid and smooth and natural. I go, this guy's going to win Wimbledon multiple times. If he doesn't, it's, it's going to be a big surprise to me because he just looked like he just belonged out there and you could just transpose the hard court to grass. And so I just, then I said, he'll be number one. He can feel it. He's, he's hit a new level here. And I think in those two years from 99 French open to 2001 Basel, he obviously had made a lot of good decisions, had built his game, had figured out how to use all these tools in his toolbox because he could hit any shot. Mm -hmm. Maybe not a two-handed back end, although he hit that once in a while in practice, but he could hit every shot from any place. He had to figure out how to make the right choices. Kind of like, you know, I guess as a golfer, trying to make the right shot in the right time when you, when you go for risk and when you don't. And he seemed to have figured out something at that point that had taken him to a new level. Uh, and there's a, uh, just to back that up, uh, one of the other, little tidbits I, I really loved was uh, from the Swiss indoors. I think it was 1998 when he played Andre Agassi and just that, that how you capture Andre's post-match reaction to Roger. And uh, I know he really impressed Andre and just, I, I think tennis is so unique in the sense that, you know, at that time there was another, I think young uh, Swiss player. I, I don't have his name right in front of me, but, but essentially Agassi's point was, you know, if Federer and this guy play tomorrow, this other guy probably beats him. But when you're looking 10 years from now, it's like, it's Federer, no doubt. And I think it just spoke to, you know, obviously there were all these glimpses and flashes of, of what would be that greatness in Federer. Um, and, and obviously you saw that as well at the, at the French open in 99. Yeah. That's a, that's a great story, Randy. I mean, it was October, 98. So it was the year Roger, you know, when Wimbledon juniors turned pro and Agassi was the first top 10 guy that Roger ever played. Um, and it was in Basel and Agassi beat him pretty easy. It's like six, three, six, two. And then yeah. after the match, you know, Gilbert, Brad Gilbert, Agassi's coach went to the locker room and it looked like kind of a routine victory. I think Brad was impressed. And Andre is like, Christ, this kid Federer's got some serious skills. And he's going to be good really quickly. And Gilbert was surprised by that, but Andre was not the kind of guy who would talk up his opponents like that too much. And then next round, I guess he played another Swiss guy, the one you mentioned, Ivo Hoiberger. That's what, okay. Yeah. yeah who was, was a fine Swiss, play, Swiss player at that period and a little ahead of Roger. And he was 22. Roger was, you know, in his teens then. And it wasn't uh, uh, Brad Gilbert this time. It was David Law 
who runs a great tennis podcast now, BBC commentator, who's working for the ATP, the men's tour at that point. He was walking back with with Andre after Andre had beaten Hoiberger in the match. And he, so he just played Federer and, and then he played Hoiberger, two young mm-hmm. Swiss players. And David Law asked Andre about how he compared the two. And Andre said, well, if they played now, Hoiberger would win. But the kid who will have the career is Federer. Yeah. I, so those guys who do it every day yeah. and they feel the ball on the other side of the net and they see what's happening. They know, they know in their, in their bones, who's got it. Doesn't mean they're going to do it, but who could do it yeah. and who has what it takes. And they know tennis players above all, they remember when they're feeling uncomfortable out there. And clearly, even though Andre won three and two, he, he knew that Roger put him in some places that other guys could not. So that that's why, you know, it's great when you get a chance to hear those sorts of comments and, and the, the great players of the time share those because a lot of times they just keep them to themselves. <laughs> they aren't going to tell you that because they don't want to give that young guy uh, an extra edge or extra bit of confidence. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, the other thing I think we, I, I would love to ask you about and um, is, is so important to Roger in his development is, is the team around him. Peter Carter is a name that I so enjoyed learning about through your book and obviously his impact on, on Roger. Um, another guy that seems to be very key and seems like a very interesting guy too, that I'd love to ask you about is uh, Roger's trainer, the longtime training fitness um, guru, if you will. And uh, pardon me if I don't pronounce this name correctly, but Pierre Paganini, I, th- I think it is. No, <laughs> you, you, you should be Italian or Swiss. You're good. <laughs> No, so you got it just right. Yeah. Oh, that's it. Okay. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm really bad with name pronunciations usually. Uh, but I was, I was curious what, what you can kind of tease with, uh, with Pierre that made him so unique and, and how he really took a different course with Roger. Um, and, and a lot of that is because of Roger's personality and just what, what those two have meant to each other, I guess, um, throughout the years. Well, Pierre's the kind of guy, when you talk to him, um, you get goosebumps. Because he's just sort of this very measured, great voice, very philosophical approach. He's not at all like, let's go lift some weights, know all that. Let's go, you know, it's not like that at all. He's a very measured, sort of professorial type of guy. But he's a, he's a, he's a teacher that gave you the goosebumps in the class, not the guy who puts you to sleep. So that's, that's, that's the first thing. So that's, I don't think that's a small factor in terms of how he's had impact on athletes. The other thing that's interesting about, about Pierre, who's got kind of a shaven head, uh, sort of John Lennon spectacles, incredibly, like he has the, like 3% body fat, it looks like. Um, and sort of the veins are defined on his, on his skin as you look yeah. at it. So the guy looks like he's super fit, even though he's getting into his fifties, maybe even his sixties now, but he was a guy who was a decathlete and had trained to be a, a soccer trainer, really more than a tennis, had no tennis background to speak of at all. So he came to tennis as a foreigner in a way. And I think that was very helpful because he had the mentality of somebody who enjoyed learning and enjoyed perspective. But it'd be a bit like if you, you know, came off the train or the plane in a country you'd never been to before and started walking around the streets. Your, your view of it is you have all that freshness and perspective and your eyes are wide open and everything. You're taking it all in. Mm-hmm. I think that's what Pierre Paganini did with tennis. So he was able to look at it uh, in a way and sort of look at the things that were being done and go, well, why? Why are you doing that? You know, I'm doesn't make sense to me. And the main thing I think that he brought to it was he brought a logic to the way fitness training was done in tennis, which is a very specific sort of sport. You think about it. And he calls it um, 
what you need in tennis is explosive endurance is his term. And that makes a lot of sense because you basically are playing for five to 10 seconds of intense all out bang, bang shot making. And then what do you do? 25 seconds, just get a towel off, walk around, get ready for the next point, And then you do it again. And the point can last one shot or it can last 60 shots. Then you have mm-hmm. a break. So basically you're in this like intense effort, break, intense effort, break. And it can last two hours, four hours, five hours. So explosive endurance. You have to be able to do that again and again. And the guys who are the best at it are able to really maintain that intensity in bursts throughout a long period of time. So that was the way that Pierre decided to design his training program for tennis and make everything relevant. So, you know, seven mile runs in the woods. He might have done it when he was really early on in his career, but no more after a certain point because it just wasn't relevant to tennis. It might yeah. be good for building your character, but it wasn't good for your tennis. Everything was done in those sort of spurts sprints design. And a lot of it was done with um, uh, kind of multiple motor activities, if you will, at the same time, because tennis is that you're on the run, full speed, lunging, moving forward, fast twitching, but yet you're wielding a racket. So you're having to find make uh, hand-eye decisions uh, on the fly, basically. So Pierre designed it with medicine balls where they would do a lot of movement with medicine ball, catch the ball on the lunge, throw the medicine ball back, have to make a decision while you're doing your fitness work, like pick a certain color uh, yeah. of thing you're trying to grab in the middle of moving. So a lot of it was these sort of very complex activities. And he tried to avoid sort of the, the mono approach and kind of make it a polymathic approach. And I think he was very, very uh, smart to do that and ahead of his time. Now it's coin of the Roman tennis training, I think. But Pierre may not have been the first, but he was certainly the first to have wide success with it. And he worked with a guy named Mark Rosset, who was a top 10 player in the world, won the Olympic gold medal in tennis by surprise in 1992 in Barcelona. That was sort of his training ground. And then he worked with Roger after that. And later Stan Wawrinka, who also was a multiple Grand Slam player from Switzerland, Grand Slam champion, sorry, who, and both those guys have run into injury problems in recent years, but were remarkably injury-free for a long time, Roger Federer and and Stan Wawrinka, which is a great credit, I think, to Pierre's uh, influence. The the last member of of Team Fed that, I really found fascinating and I, I loved all the, the chapters and sections of the book where you, you discuss Mirka, Roger's wife. What a, I mean, what a force of nature. It seems like I, I know she's intensely private these days, so doesn't give any interviews. It seems like I, I think just, yeah, I just came away very fascinated by her. Um, I, I think she's a mixed bag from an outsider's perspective. I know she can rub people the wrong way in, in how she deals with media requests, maybe, or, or people that want Roger's time. But yet she also obviously has been so good for Roger himself and, and such a, a rock for him. Um, tell me about your experiences with her and, and kind of how you went about trying to portray her in, in the book. Did Was that an area that was at all uncomfortable or, or was that, you know, a bit tricky for you? Good question. I mean, Roger calls her his rock. Uh, That's, that's, that's what his term for her is that. And I, and I know it's, that's how he feels. Um, I don't think he would be the player that he, that he is without, without her, without her influence. She was a a fine professional tennis player herself, whose career was ended very early because of uh, chronic foot problems, but she was on her way to being a top 30 player in the world. I think she was already top hundred. Roger and Mirka actually played together in the Hopman Cup, which is a team event for men and women in Perth, Australia, back for one, one year. I think it was 2002 they played together. 
So there's actually footage of that on the internet if anybody wants to look it up. <laughs> Pretty amusing. Yeah. They, they're interviewed together. So they actually actually played together in an event, played mixed doubles. And um, she was somebody who was very organized, very driven, very methodical, very, very hard worker, um, had a high tolerance for pain and suffering, I think, from what I've heard. Um, and uh, but didn't have that sort of genius level skill with the racket and the hands. So when her career ended early, she and Roger were already together by then. Uh, and I think she realized that um, what Roger could do, it was clear to her. And she wanted to provide the platform for him to be able to uh, maximize his abilities and his talent. And it was all, I think it was all very clearly discussed with Roger. And America at that time, when she left the professional circuit, and was no longer playing. She actually was Roger's media coordinator, which is such a funny thing now because you're right. She hasn't given an interview of any real <laughs> substance for 15 years now. By that time, you know, the one who was answering the phone and answering the text was Mirka when he wanted to talk to Roger. <laughs> so it couldn't be a bigger turnaround in that regard. And one of my early interviews with Roger, she was there helping organize it. We were up in the hotel in Paris with a view of the Place de la Concorde. And they were going to do a Paris, Paris match magazine photo shoot later that day or later that week. So there's a whole bunch of, of outfits that Mirka was trying on. So Roger and I are talking and Mirka kept coming in with a different outfit on <laughs> every five minutes, something new, you know, peasant robe or elegant <laughs> evening gown and four or five different things. And Roger would sort of comment quickly and then get back to the interview. <laughs> so they've been linked uh, professionally and privately for such a long time now, 20 plus years, have, have four children now. And you can't imagine Roger as he's become without her and her influence. But I, I think in a lot of ways, she lived vicariously uh, through Roger's success. And I think Roger was quite happy with that approach, um, knowing that her career didn't give her what she would have liked and would have probably deserved. So he was happy to play that role. But it, one of our more recent interviews, he talked about the fact that, that that was gone now and that she no longer felt that need or that desire to do that and that she was fully fulfilled in what she was doing. But it was a challenge to try to depict her fairly and completely without having access to her. Mm -hmm. I'm sure when Roger does his autobiography that she'll be a big part of it in some way, but she's somebody who uh, uh, is very strong uh, with her opinions, very protective. Um, people who know her well say she can be a hell of a lot of fun too. Somebody has got a lot of, uh, a lot of personal charisma, but I think really she's Roger has been her big project and she's succeeded very well with that. But as far as depicting her, I think, my big advantage was that Roger and I have talked a lot about her over mm -hmm. the years in our interviews. He was very open about the importance of her, their stories, their history, the poignancy of what happened to her along the way with her own career. So I think that's what makes the chapter that delves into the relationship pretty strong in the book is that he has a lot of his perspective about her and his kids and the way their, their connection developed over the years. And that makes it, I think, uh, if not complete, I think a pretty, a pretty fair and good, good look at it. And who she is. And a lot of Roger's coaches and advisors over the years and, and rivals also talk about America as well. Uh, and have, have a lot of insight into her character and, and who she was. And it's, it's quite a story of her own too. Yeah. Yeah. That's I, yeah. Just how she got into tennis and it, it's, it's a remarkable story. Um, absolutely. Um, I, as I mentioned, when we jumped into the book, you know, one of the things I, I really treasured was, um, some of Roger's rivals and how you use, you know, certain matches or certain periods in his life to, to springboard and, and talk a little bit about these different people, whether it's, it's Hewitt, uh, Leighton Hewitt, the, the Australian who was such a rival as 
they, they had a great rivalry as juniors and then into the early years of their career. Um, Murat Safin, uh, is another guy I think who was you, you you identified as a world number one. He was the other guy that that you saw and just his his talent uh, popped out. I, I think from my perspective, these are guys that I, I certainly didn't appreciate. You know, I, I know of them and and have watched them play, but it was so much fun to to really learn more about their stories. Um, you know, Pete Sampras, Andre Agassi, so many anecdotes. I guess if you'll allow me just a couple questions and then I, I, I set that up because then obviously Rafa Nadal and Novak Djokovic, um, as, as those guys come and, and start to compete with Federer and, and form the, the quote unquote big three and, and the big four for a time with Andy Murray, um, it's, it's fascinating. And, and I pulled a quote, it, it's from 296 of your book, where you classify uh, Federer as a pleaser, Rafa as a fighter and Novak as a searcher. Um, you, you go into, of course, great detail in the book on why that is, but, but just kind of as uh, from a, a quick tease for listeners, I, I was hoping maybe you could shed some light on, on how you arrived at those labels for the three guys. Yeah, and they are labels. They're, they're pretty reductive <laughs> in a way, but I, mean, I was trying for a story I did on, actually a story I did on Novak when I went to interview him in Monte Carlo a couple of years ago. It, was, it just struck me what a, what a searcher, a seeker he is. And how he's so restless that way in terms of his mentality. He's like never satisfied with where he's at, sort of what where he's going to get to next. He's not sure the method he has right now is optimal. He wants to find a way to kind of rip up the cards and deal, deal the cards again. It's it's an interesting sense. You, you sense that when you're around him. I think his interest in sort of Zen and, and Eastern philosophies and things like that is probably because he's trying to calm himself because <laughs> he has this <laughs> boiling point inside, which is, constant um but i think that's for me i was trying to figure okay well if, if if he's the seeker which he clearly is to me what are the other guys and i think in terms of roger uh roger likes it smooth he's a fighter deep down for sure no doubt about it he wouldn't be as successful as he as he is or has been without that inner fire too but he's managed to kind of cool that down on the surface mm-hmm. it all looks very smooth He's somebody who likes his private life and his professional life to be smooth as well. Doesn't like a lot of controversy or issues to pop up. He likes to kind of manage it all behind the scenes and create a, a pretty smooth ride. And I think in that sense, he also really enjoys the connection with the public in a way and has had so much positive feedback from it that it's kind of this positive feedback loop. People enjoy watching him play. They like the image he presents for the game and everything else. So he, he enjoys pleasing people that way and, getting, and takes a lot of meaning from that. I think Nadal does as well. Nadal is somebody who needs uh, as also was also raised very well. And I think he's somebody who understands how to respect the taxi driver who he'll never see again, or the person handing him the towel in the locker room. He's both those guys have that quality, but Nadal to me is the greatest fighter I've ever seen in men's tennis point by point in the moment, you know, battler. He's somebody who can just fight, fight, fight for the joy of the fight. Point ends, 20 seconds later, he does it again and again and again and again in a way the other guys haven't been able to maintain, I think, at the same level. So I'm trying to define those labels. It's Nadal with his sweat flying off his brow and his left arm slashing, and he's the fighter. And that's that's why he'll be he'll be remembered 30, 40 years from now. So, yeah, I think I think those labels, even though they all could probably bleed into each other in different ways. Sure. Uh, I think they're for me, they, they work. I, impossible question, and I'm sure you get it hundreds and hundreds of times. How, how would you rank the big three? 
if you had to, you know, stack everybody's career um, and make your definitive power ranking at, at this moment, uh, do, do you have a, an easy way to answer that? You know, I, th- I think Novak Djokovic deserves the, the slight nod at the moment, um, just based on his level of achievement uh, across all surfaces and all major tournaments, not just the Grand Slams, but the, the next level, the ATP 1000s, they're called now, which are sort of the uh, Italian Open in Rome, Madrid Open, Indian Wells, Miami, uh, Monte Carlo, all these different events. My, uh, my hometown, Cincinnati. Got to there you go. Throw a shot to Cincinnati. Rod, Rod, yeah. Roger's done very well there, too. But yes. I, I, Novak has just had a consistent level of, of, of success. And he owns, you know, the uh, one of the most prestigious records now, which is the most total weeks of number one, which is a very meaningful record from 73 on. Um, somebody who he's blown Roger's record now pretty much out of the water in the last uh, six months to nine months. So I think he's somebody who, and will continue to have success. So and if you were to separate and break the tie of 20 major titles, plus everything else that he's achieved, I think he, I give him the slight edge at this moment. Have to see how he manages the downslide. Right. Roger's been fighting you know, past his prime very effectively for the last five or six years and has stayed very relevant and had a very high winning percentage. We'll see if Novak's able to do the same because now he's 34 heading to 35, Roger's 40. But I think beyond that, I, I put Nadal and Federer very close at the moment. Um, Nadal's had the amazing success at the French Open, which nobody will ever duplicate, I don't think, in my opinion, on the men's side. 13 titles at one major tur- major tournament like that, especially one as grueling as the French Open. But Rogers had, I think, across other surfaces, grass, hard, and clay, and then the longevity at number one that he had. I think he has some arguments to be made on his behalf as well. Also, as one... I'm not sure what the equivalent is in golf, but the tour championship perhaps, but the, the finals of the year, the ATP finals brings the yeah. best eight players of the year together. Quite a prestigious event within the tour itself. Rogers won that, I think five times. The dolls never won it. So you have arguments either way. Novak, I think gets a slight edge just purely on tennis performance. The doll and Federer just behind, I would say for me right now. Is, is Rafa on clay the most, difficult opponent in men's tennis history. It, has there been somebody else on perhaps a different surface that has been more difficult to beat than, than Nadal on, on clay? Well, Borg was pretty tough on clay for a while. Bjorn Borg, the Swedish player back in the, in the seventies and um, won six French open titles, somebody who was just tremendously well-equipped for that surface in particular, also won the Wimbledon five times as well, which is more surprising, but no, over a long period of time on one surface like that. And it's not just the French Open, by the way. It's Barcelona, Monte Carlo, Rome, other places as well on clay. He's just been the dominant player on that surface and just the perfect matchup of a man and his skills and mentality and and that surface, which is a grinding surface, which requires a lot of tactical movement and and setup as well. Ruff is a much more intelligent player than the average fan gives him credit for. Towards the kind of the last thing on, on Roger and, and the book um, towards the end, of course, you, you shift to, well, one Roger kind of has a, a post prime Renaissance on, on the court, which is, which is a lot of fun and uh, quite interesting. But then I, th- I think it's also as a, as a reader, it was quite interesting, just the chapter on Roger, the businessman and how he has set up along with his agent um, kind of his, you know, what would, be his his post playing business opportunities and uh, with the the Rod Laver Cup, um, starting to think kind of about his 
his lasting legacy as well. I guess I have two questions. Do you think we'll see Roger on a tennis court in 2022? And, you know, how much at this point with with the injuries now, uh, how much tennis do you think he has left in him? You know, people have uh, come out on the wrong side of, of underestimating Roger for a long time. So he clearly wants to come back. He clearly wants to play again. He's 40 years old. He'll be 41 in August. Um, that's by any age, any measure old for a tennis player, especially one who's had multiple knee surgeries now, a game of movement, a game of explosive movement, and so many young, talented players in the game. So I think the answer to your question is, I think, yes, we will see him on a court again. Whether, whether he'll have the kind of success he's searching for, I, I seriously doubt. I also wouldn't be surprised if he puts himself through the whole rehab on this latest knee surgery, uh, gets himself to a point where he realizes it's just not going to be possible to play at the level he wants to, and he decides that that's it. But I think his, his intent clearly is to play again. And there are some precedents in men's tennis. Ken Rosewall, a great Australian player, played into his mid-40s and even did very well at Grand Slam tournaments in his early 40s. Different level of physicality and speed in the game in Rosewall's era, however. But, you know, Roger has fantastic racket skills. He has been an outlier in terms of his ability to uh, to move smoothly and and to sort of counter the the grind of time, if you will. But it's definitely caught up to him in the last couple of seasons. I do think that on grass, if he's healthy 100%, it's based on his skills and how particular that surface is, how hard it is for a lot of young guys to figure out, he could certainly have a, a chance to make an impact there. I don't see him winning it again, but I could certainly, if he gets 100% healthy, he could certainly make a make a little run there for sure because he just understands the, the game on that surface so well. A bit like, you know, the Open Championship in golf, right? Sure. The style of play the guys don't see week to week and and some guys are going to thrive on it at later ages and other guys who are younger because they just understand it better. He could do that there, but otherwise I just, you know, I think his, it seems to me his vision of it is he wants to come back, play again, pain-free, uh, commune with the public again, have some success, maybe in his mind win Wimbledon again, that would be his ultimate dream. He was so close in 2019 against Novak, two match points, couldn't seal the deal at age 38 would have been one of the great stories in sports. Couldn't quite do it. So I'm sure he doesn't want to end it that way, but I, I just don't think he's guaranteed to get a better ending than that, unfortunately. Yeah. It, it's funny, you know, just right now I've thought about, uh, you talk about how Roger and Tiger Woods kind of became linked uh, through sponsorship and and had a little bit of a friendship. And I feel like right now they, they kind of find themselves in very similar positions. Again, both have really gone through the ringer injury wise and, and, everybody's wondering, you know, do they have high level competition left in them? Um, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. I, I hope obviously selfishly we, we see Roger and, and can see him in some big moments again. I, I think, you know, trying to appreciate him as, as much as possible before he does hang it up. Um, that, that would be my wish. Uh, Chris, let me get you out with, with, with one other question. I, I love to ask guests and, and I'm so curious to, to hear your response. What are some of your favorite, do you, do you read many tennis books and, and what have been some of your favorite tennis books that, that you've read and, and perhaps uh, some seminal uh, works um, in, in the tennis writing uh, genre, if you will? That's, that's a great question. I mean, I obviously have read a lot of books for this project. <laughs> um, 
I, I have a new respect when I go into bookstores, I look up at the, at the shelves and I see these sort of slim spines of a book <laughs> up there. And I go, oh my goodness, think about how much effort when that little space began that bookstore, knowing how much effort went into writing mine. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing to me how much it's year, a year of full on effort and then all the background for it. So full respect to anybody who tries it. Uh, I guess for me, I like books with scope and dimension. And um, I think for me, one of the tennis books that's given me the most pleasure in recent years was it's called A Terrible Splendor. I don't know if you've read it or not. I actually have. Marshall John Fisher. Yes. And, I, and to me, that was one of my is one of my favorite tennis books for sure. And it tells the story of of Gottfried von Krom, German player of the of the 30s and Don Budge, who was the first uh, player to complete the Grand Slam in tennis, American redhead from California. And it just is a wonderful job of mixing social history and their rivalry and, and bringing their games and their era to life. And uh, I thought it was this tremendous book and, and really a book that you don't need to be a tennis fan to, to get a lot out of uh, the details and the micro in there are not as important as the, the bigger picture of, of world war II era Germany and Gottfried von Kram, who was a um, closeted homosexual and, and a, and a very strong and proud person trying to fight against the forces of nature that were, pretty powerful there with Hitler and all that. And that's the connection he had with Budge and tremendous book. And I also, I also really liked uh, open uh, Agassiz's book with uh, Moringer, which was helped, helped him write. And, and it's uh, as tennis autobiography. Uh, it's, it's the best out there. I think it's a great autobiography period. And unfortunately for me as a tennis writer, I learned far too much from reading it. I wish I'd been able to cover all those stories I didn't know were happening behind the scenes along the way. Andre revealed a lot in that book, put himself out there. Mm-hmm. And I also, I, I feel like, um, I think Rafa is a good book too. Uh, the Nadal autobiography is pretty old now. It's been out uh, nine or 10 years, captures his, his rise very well and, and very effectively. And I think it's a lot to learn from that as well. And then there's handful of summers by Gordon Forbes, which is a tennis insider book about kind of the golden era of, amateur tennis and people out there on the circuit and when players were sharing hotel rooms and drinking lots of beer and, and <laughs> just very colorfully exploring the areas in which they were traveling. It's, it's a great travel log of a book as well. Wonderful. You give me a couple I, I do need to read. So uh, I greatly appreciate that. Uh, do you still play that? I was going to end with, with asking you if you still play much tennis and uh, how your game is. I'm not playing enough. Um, okay. I've had some, inj- I've had some elbow issues and different things like that, but I am playing a lot of platform tennis, which is uh, oh, nice. yeah. which is a cut, which is a cousin tennis. And a lot of you know, former college tennis players have gravitated to that because you don't have to run as far and, uh, and you can still have the impression that you're improving, which I'll never have again in tennis. That's for sure. But um, yeah, I, I still play and I'm eager to get back to playing some more, hopefully now if, uh, if my elbow will allow me. Wonderful. Um, I, I wish you nothing but the best of luck again for, for folks out listening. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. The book is the master, the long run and beautiful game of Roger Federer available anywhere. Um, is there a specific site that helps you more than others, Christopher, where they can pick you know, up the book? I would say, uh, you know, for me, you can get it anywhere. Anyhow, of course it's, it's out there, but I, I have had so much pleasure over my years, Randy, probably as you have, you know, browsing through independent bookstores in my yes. neighborhoods, wherever they've been. And uh, yeah, it might cost you a couple of dollars more, but I, it's so important for communities that those places continue to thrive and survive. So I hope that 
if you have a choice that you, you go down to wherever you are and order it from there or get it from there and even better go down and pick it out of the bookshelves yourself and, and buy it. I think that's a great pleasure in that. Amen. Yep. Uh, that's, uh, that's actually where I got mine. So I, that's, uh, that's very well said. Christopher, safe travels down to Australia. I, I hope you can make the trip, um, I, I, you know, with, with all the crazy stuff going on. And uh, I can't thank you enough for your time today. I thank you for the book. And, and this interview was a true pleasure getting to follow up and, and actually talk to you. So thank you. Randy, thank you. And I, I give you full, uh, full credit for, for doing your homework. You, you made it uh, fun for me and, and a challenge at times, too, with some of the questions that catch me by surprise. I, I love it. And uh, I wish you well. Favorite trapper, the absolute truth, yeah, no joke. Who me, I'm